1: Tim is a New York Times best-selling author of five books, including his most recent entitled Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. Tim is a veteran sales, marketing, and HR leader with expertise in sales collaboration, relationship management, leadership, and customer experience design. His philosophy of finding success by producing it in others has landed him on the cover of Fast Company. The page is a Wall Street Journal, and the set of the Today Show. He was an early stage member of Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com and went on to become Chief Solutions Officer at Yahoo. Today, he is one of the top speakers on the lecture circuit and as an entrepreneur, leads Deeper Media, which serves leading brands around the world. Good morning, Tim. Welcome to Business Owners Radio.
2: Hey, Craig Shaw. I'm glad to be with you guys. It's great to
1: have you on the show today. And Tim, you've written a number of bestseller, successful books. Tell us about what was happening in your world that drove you to writing this book.
2: I uh, had been consulting for over a decade since I left Yahoo, and I've been helping companies of all sizes solve business development and sales challenges. It's an area that I've really been focused on. And I discovered a process when I was still working for Mark Cuban and then later at Yahoo that I've been able to apply for a lot of clients to help them be faster at solving problems at the deal level. And most recently, I'm helping these same customers solve problems in customer service and in operations. I call the concept deal storming. Guys, think of it as an improved version of brainstorming aimed at execution.
1: And I know a lot of the focus is on the sales cycle particularly one that i grew up in if you will the sales funnel and the volume approaches if you get enough through the funnel something's going to come out the other end so we just need to speed up the process and roll it out tell us
2: about your deal storming collaborative approach though So the way I think is that the funnel theory, they call it activity management. It worked the best when you had a very large and growing addressable market, right? So if you had a huge set of opportunities, you could load the funnel and then be okay with 1% or 10% or whatever falling out the bottom. Here's the issue. It's not just a numbers game anymore. Today, it's a puzzle solving game. Most business owners know that they're facing more competition than ever because it's easier than ever to start a business, right? You can do it in the cloud. You can leverage the crowd. Everybody that I talk to says, I've got twice as many competitors as I had five years ago. But more importantly, for those of you that do anything in business to business, you've probably noticed that there's more decision makers and influencers than ever weighing in on your situation. You've probably noticed that there are more operational challenges than ever at maintaining any kind of business scale. So when I think about the funnel, I think that we've got to be more strategic about moving into that funnel, or as some sales leaders call it, the pipeline, and finding those game-changing opportunities. And using collaboration to win those opportunities because what it does is it creates a unique culture at your company, regardless of your size, where everybody learns that when they get stuck in any kind of challenge, you don't go down alone. And I think that defeating that lone wolf culture is so important. And for business owners who have smaller companies, getting out of that mentality that you are superwoman, superman, and you're going to solve it on your own, that's a huge game changer in a world world where everything's becoming more complex and more problem-solving oriented.
3: It's so true. You know, I'm thinking about this. I'm hearing a little Pareto principle here, Mm -hmm. looking into this funnel and saying, okay, we got to get rid of 80% of this. What are the 20% that are going to make a difference for us? And more importantly, that we're really in position to win because versus the competing option, sort of a unique position for this audience. And this is really our best, our most likely customer.
2: Absolutely. And... The other thing that's important is that in a company, its culture is a conversation mostly punctuated by stories about how we successfully do things here. And the big opportunities, uh, the big accounts that almost left us, those are all the stories that determine the intuition of an organization. So every single one of your employees will know what to do even when you're not around, if your culture is strong. So what are your stories? And that's just as important, Shy as the revenue opportunity in those larger agreements. And I'll say one more thing. I've been noticing in the last few years that a lot of business owners have become very comfortable with what I call the small to large or the free to premium type of business model, where you offer something at a really low cost, it's a no-brainer to make that decision, and then the theory is you'll get in at $5,000 a month, or you'll get in at $1,000 a month, and you'll that service's business to the sky. I sit on a lot of boards for a lot of small companies, and I'm by a thousand small deals. The the, <laughs> the Looking at a bigger opportunity, doing that, even though it's harder, even though you think, how can I beat a big company on a big deal? That is your only barrier to entry. I'll give you a classic example. I know all companies that have these little technology solutions help a customer around CRM. And they go in on these customer relationship plays. And again, they're trying to play like, we'll give it to you free and then charge you a subscription dollars a month. And they'll get into an account logo like GE or whatever. And they'll little small deals. And all of a sudden, somebody, a big legacy company comes with Oracle, somebody comes in with a mediocre product, but they take the whole thing off the table. And I talked to these small companies, they didn't see it coming, they said we should win because we have a better product, but the reality is that when you look more aggressively at an opportunity for an account, that is the only way that you can take the whole opportunity and keep it over time. So retention these days, especially for a smaller business, has a lot to do with becoming more essential to your customer, which means you have to solve a bigger part of the problem, and you need to get there quicker.
3: Yeah. And to use your example of the thousand dollar customers. Yeah, you'll have a whole bunch of those. But that means that you're also basically positioning yourself as a company that offers low price services. And so you're just going to continue to attract all of that noise into your workplace. And then how can you then reorient your people towards the more important deals?
2: Exactly, and here's the way I think about it as a business owner, just ask yourself what major deal are we working on today? I know I know a guy who owns a couple of dry cleaners okay he's a dry cleaner owner He owns three different locations, but he's working on a corporate deal with the largest casino here in Las Vegas to take that business off the table. he'll use that to generate intense enthusiasm it'll generate more volume at all three locations, which will drive down his average cost but Five years ago, he would never have thought about that because he says, you know, there's these error marks of the world. How can I beat them? And the answer was you can out collaborate them and you can be faster at implementing novel solutions than they are. And even for him, he's thinking bigger. And that one account, again, can make a huge impact on how everybody inside his businesses think.
3: I love that you translated this to bricks and mortar. Because this can be such a compelling strategy for owners of small businesses that feel like they're stuck in a rut Mm -hmm. and they're stuck with the customers they have. If they can expand their thinking a little bit and think about, you know, what are the larger customers that I can sell a lot more volume to? And it's huge opportunities like you talked about, because what they're really doing is leveraging their local reputation as a business owner and those relationships over the years. And like you said, more often navigate if they reach out and create those deals that can just be game-changing.
2: Oh, absolutely. Let me give you a story to illustrate this. So there is an architectural firm by downtown Las Vegas. They're called LGA. And Craig Galati is one of the owners, partners of that firm. And for years, they focused on designing visitor centers, tourist and development-related facilities. And as you would say, you keep doing it, doing that, they knew they could do something else. And then this bid came along, they found out about, for something called Opportunity Village. And Opportunity Village was expanding its facilities, and it provides services to intellectually disabled and handicapped teenagers and young adults. And Craig wanted to get into that business, but he knew that he couldn't win the bid on his own. He was up against companies that he said were literally 10 times to 50 times his size, some major players. He also knew that they were local so that they could possibly get close on the deal because they were the only Las Vegas company that was going to bid. So here's what Craig does. Craig asks himself, who else might have expertise about this unique set of customers? And they realized that they knew somebody in Baltimore named Jane Rhodes, who also had an firm that had expertise on intellectually disabled facilities. She had been brought in a couple previously to review some LGA work, because that's what they do in architectural firm, The general contractor sometimes will bring in another architect to review work before they you know, break ground. So sure. they knew her, and they made friends with her, and Craig called her a competimate, which means technically a competitor, but plays nice with us has stuff in common with us. <laughs> Love it. So, so a long time ago, they had told each other, hey, if we can help each other, I'm here for you, you're here. So they called it in. They called Jane. And it was really a game changer for them. She helped them think that they designed the facility. They need to make the job easier for the attending staff so there could be no complex patterns on the roof they had to think differently about carpet and fabric. And then she even came to Las Vegas and helped them finish the bid and called in on day of presentation. That's how much she helped them. They win that bid. It expands their business. They've expanded their company since then. They're in an entirely different space now. And then they've returned the favor to her when she's bidding on local tourism and developed projects in greater Baltimore. And that's a great example, you guys, because several of the things that they collaborated on for this Opportunity Village bid were very unique and were a little bit outside the box. And they took advantage of the fact that these companies they were competing with that were 10 to 50 times their size had layers of bureaucracy and could not get it approved in time for presentation day. So here's the takeaway. You don't have to be a big company to collaborate. You have to think big. You have to ask yourself, who do I know that has a stake in the outcome or expertise around my problem? And that way, you can get a variety of players involved. You can get your suppliers, because everybody's got a set of suppliers, consultants that you work with to get involved. They want you to win. You can get competimates like Craig did. You can get trade association members you've met at conferences. you can get what I call inside champions. Like people at the prospect company that like you, maybe because you're local and they want to help you. They can actually be part of your collaborative team. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the number of perspectives or takes that you have on a particular problem. And what we've learned at my company, Deeper Media, is that when you increase the number of perspectives in a room and you add the customer service group, you increase by 50% your chance of solving the problem. But when you go to three or four perspectives, your chance of solving the problem in that meeting and forward, whatever you're trying to solve, goes up more than 100%. So there really is a lot of power in going beyond your individual experience and point of view.
1: Tim, so much of the world still is in that delegation mode as far as everybody has their tasks and their role in the business and in in any business process. They go off, do their thing, and submit their materials um, or what they've worked on, and everything's done. In this highly competitive environment that reality is bringing to us how does one stem that tide from this self sufficiency into this culture of teamwork and collaboration? What kind of steps
2: would you recommend? So, 30 years ago, success in business was about process forming, right? You create a process, you delegate, you streamline it, you got a sales funnel, you've got a delivery fan, you know, all these processes. Today, success comes from problem-solving. Every process you've ever built in the last 50 years is being disrupted by something, and not just technology, folks. So you have to think differently. So think about this model. I see that a lot of times owners confuse line work with teamwork. Let me illustrate. You go to a restaurant. The host seats you. The server takes your order. The cook makes... The server brings it to you, the busboy clears the table, the host takes your money on the way out the door. Folks, that's not teamwork, that's line work, okay? And in a perfect world, it works, okay? Teamwork is when the busboy that the food's been under the lamp too long, so he expedites it to the customer. That is teamwork. And that type of culture in a restaurant will produce remarkably better service. You see it all the time in the better restaurants you visit. We've got to hire people that have a team-oriented approach. And I've got a little trick for you if you're a, and you say, well, I want to hire people that are more likely to collaborate than just focus on doing their job. When you're interviewing a Ask the candidate what they volunteered for in their last job, maybe a project that was important they were asked to help on, it was especially say for sales or service people. If the salesperson looks at you with cold eyes and he says, I never did that, I was down crushing my numbers. If she looks at you and says, I was never asked, or I was asked, but I was too busy, this is a person focused only on their job. You want someone who has a history of volunteering. Here's why. Those that volunteer are better at building teams because they build relationships in an organization. Boy, did I learn that my first day at Yahoo! So, I worked for Mark Cuban at his startup in Dallas, the one he sold to Yahoo! for all that money, you know, back in 1999. And then when I got to Yahoo! it was like a scene out of the first day in the lunchroom. Everybody was sitting in clicks. So, the engineers were over in a table with their dog and their propellers, and the salespeople were over in a table and the marketing. So, I made a decision that day that just changed the arc of my career. I decided that I would, every single day, I sat my trade down at a new table, met a new group, I found opportunities to help them on something. Do a little research. Network them with somebody they were trying to talk to in the finance group that I knew. Help them with the PowerPoint presentation on a budget review. I learned this trick, you guys, of what I call feeding the favor economy. Because in every organization or in every local community, there's a favor economy we feed by helping people out because we can't nothing in return. And when you feed that favor economy, what you're doing is building a collaborative web. Just like Craig had with Jane, you've got this node you can reach out to when you get stuck and find somebody with a fresh take on your problem. It doesn't just come out of the blue. You got to build those relationships long before you need them, coined the old phrase. So I think that's the secret in changing not only how we hire, it's also the secret in changing how we lead and how we think about teamwork and how we think about what we invest in in the relationship.
3: Yeah, it's reciprocity in action. You know, I think we all build our networks in different ways. And when was the last time you just reached out to one of your connections to see what you could help them with?
2: Oh, absolutely. I love that every Friday, and I do this every week I can. Every Friday, I somebody I haven't talked to in a year or two. But get them on the phone. I love to get them on video Skype. You guys, I'm so into video right now when we're doing something live so we can see each other, screen share, etc. But I get them on the phone and I ask them, what are you working on, you're excited about, tell me about your WOW project. And I mostly listen. And I listen for the to help. And by the way, even if you don't find an opportunity to help that old friend you haven't talked to for a few years, Adam Grant, the author, calls it a dormant connection. They bring energy to your day. They've been working on something that's completely different than what you've been thinking about. They bring that intellectual property to you. It is an invigorating exercise. I recommend everybody do it. If you do it every single week, think about it. You have a chance 50 times or more a year to add fresh new nodes to your collaborative network. The key is you need to focus on their passion projects. And try to help them first, because you've got to extend to receive. And so I think that's the difference. You're not calling people to pitch them on anything. That is not you know, reconnecting. That's just selling an old prospect.
1: Tim, mm-hmm. you talk about the magic meeting in your book, and I'd like to understand that further. And also, could you comment about remote workers and how you're dealing with that for the meetings?
2: Great. So the deal storming process follows seven steps. The fourth step is the and magic meetings change everything. When I say magic meeting, what I mean is that we come into the room, we discuss the problem, we agree on the root cause, and we're right. We're candid about possible solutions, and we all agree on what I call the next play, or what you at Duke would call the next play. And when you walk out of a meeting with the next play, you guys, that's a successful meeting. The purpose of a meeting have another meeting, right? So that's the goal. And so here are a couple of things to think about to have those magic meetings. First of all, you have to build the right team. I mentioned before, the question you ask yourself is, who has a stake in the outcome? That's who you want to invite. Those are your blockers and tacklers in the meeting. They're usually the ones that agree to after the meeting, even if it's not their job. You ask yourself, who's an expert about my problem, in particular about the root cause? That's who you recruit. But by the way, Ask one less person than you think you'd need to be part of this group because you're managing a bunch of personalities. It's really easy for a meeting like this to turn into a goat rodeo. You know what I mean? And the most important thing you've got to do is you've got a problem brief. In sales, I call it a deal brief. And you've got to create it a few days before you have this thing. And the brief's going to say here's why we think we're stuck, here's the opportunity, here's what we've tried. They've said, here's some more information about this company to get you thinking. And then finally, here's an assignment for you. Kick holes in my root cause, right? Tell me I'm not solving the right problem. Come up with some ideas for a solution. Tell me who's missing on this team. You can do that brief in two, three pages, usually two pages. And that brief to somebody a few days in advance, and it triggers incubation their mind will start working on that problem for a couple of days. And it gives them time not only to come up with ideas, but to understand their key assumptions. Because when you're in a meeting and you have an idea, and someone says, that's a bad idea, the reason you get defensive is you haven't had enough time to be on your key assumption. Because if you know... Really what you're thinking on this situation, you can actually have a debate with somebody in the room and not get upset. So that's a secret. And I learned that from IDEO Labs, which is a big agency in the Silicon Valley. Tom Kelly, the co-founder, said they've been doing these design briefs, and that was because creativity doesn't happen on the spot. That's why brainstorming fails so much. It's something we incubate. So that's the secret, you guys, the deal brief. So let me just answer the last part of your question about remote workers. I believe that a successful problem-solving meeting should be face-to-face, and if there's somebody that's being a part of that meeting that's not in the room, they need to be coming in via video. I'm just not a fan of conference call for high-level problem-solving. There's a lot of reasons, but the main reason is people on the other end multitask. They're doing several things at once. Another thing is that they're not seeing us, so we interrupt each other all the time, We find that video creates more liking between the people, which opens up that collaboration discussion. It creates a lot more full engagement where people are only thinking about the meeting. And it offers the opportunity for us to screen share and be visual. So when you have a remote worker leverage forms like FaceTime and Video Skype for Business, Zoom is a great platform too. And that's a great way to get the most out of people that aren't in the room.
1: Tim, when we're going forward and we're adding new staff to our businesses, this innovation side or having creativity as part of the equation for hiring, what are your thoughts there? What should we additionally be looking for?
2: Um, I think you want to look for someone who talks about a challenge as being a real motivator for them. And you'll see it because in their previous jobs or in their previous studies, they always seem to take harder jobs. They weren't necessarily pursuing bigger titles. I think that's really important. I want you to look for that challenge DNA. Someone who loves solving problems. I also think that it's important for you to look at someone, as I mentioned, that has a history of working in collaborative groups, whatever that is. Uh, whether they were working on projects, whether they were working on company-wide initiatives, I also think that you want to look for someone uh, who shows a creative flair. So at companies, say, like Google, Whole Foods example, Zappos here in Vegas does it, there should always be a problem-solving challenge as part of the interview process. Because the way they approach solving that problem, will show you how collaborative they are, how creative they are, and how dependent they are on a system to be successful. Because the last thing you need in the new world of more complex are people that are only as good as the system they work in. So I think those are some things to think about. But I'll tell you something else. Your culture is built partially through recognition and reward. So as a business owner, you should think about creating an award, a compensation element where you give people credit, recognition, compensation, demonstrating teamwork, whether they're good at building a team, leading a team, etc. And here's the last thing. It's not just hiring. It's not just compensation. It's how we develop people every day. So as a business owner, here's what I'm saying. When you see a problem that your current process cannot solve, don't go down alone. You need to create a team. You need to collaborate. But here's the secret sauce, folks. The owner shouldn't run these collaborative meetings if there's another problem owner inside that company. Let me illustrate this. So let's say you own a business, and your top salesperson comes to you with a huge opportunity, but it's very and you're going to get stuck in a bunch of situations trying to win that deal. Typically, the owner says, okay, a meeting, and the owner runs that meeting. The research says that when you put together blockers and tacklers and experts, everybody's going to anchor around the owner's first idea, and it's going to create a chilling effect your people speaking up or talking about things that aren't working. It's better for you as an owner to sponsor that meeting and the back of the room providing support to the actual person on your team who owns the situation. If it's a sales challenge, then it's your salesperson. If it's a service delivery challenge on a big account, then it's that account owner or that service director. It's the best leadership development thing they'll ever go through in their life running a high-stakes meeting with multiple perspectives, sometimes outside the company. And as a sponsor, you can still get them back on track. You can give them feedback after the meeting. You can agree in the meeting to give them resources or provide some sage advice if they ask based on what happened 10 years ago. But as an owner, don't automatically assume that you should run corporation because you're missing the biggest opportunity as an owner to grow somebody into a leader.
1: That's great insight. Thank you for joining us today, Tim. We really enjoyed our time with you.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed my time
1: with you guys, too. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: I've built a page for the listeners. It's timsandles.com front slash B-O-R. You know, like Business Owners Radio. On that page, I have a full... from my latest book, Deal Storming. It's called Sales Genius is a Team Sport. It's 30 pages and it will walk you through stories and processes for you to think differently about teamwork. On that page, I'll also give you a way to connect with me over LinkedIn or Twitter, and you'll be able to check out some of my other works too. So go visit that page. But I want to leave everybody listening with just one thought. The bigger you think, The more stable your business becomes if you can rapidly solve all the problems that come with thinking big. And when you get stuck as an owner, don't go down alone. Don't be afraid to reach out to people that work for you, with you, as employees, partners in the market space. Learn how to build teams, trust the process, and think more like a Navy SEAL than a lone wolf because individuals play the games, but teams beat the odds think about that.
1: Our guest today has been Tim Sanders, thought leader, lecturer, and author of five bestseller books. You can learn more about Tim as well as find links to his website and resources, including a full excerpt from his new book, DealStorming, all in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Align for Business. That's Aligned, the number four, business.com.
0: Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show. And of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.